Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, selves, not selves, <laughs> everything in between. <clears throat> I know we keep saying it over and over again, but it is an honor to bear witness to the work and courage that you all have done. We just had one of our kind of final get-togethers because tomorrow's a little hectic. This, the the teachers and the managers and again we were reflecting what a beautiful group you've been how you supported each other and it's been just a joy and <clears throat> just in case you've forgotten that there actually is a kind of life going on beyond these grounds and uh, tomorrow you're going to get to experience some of it. Um, tonight I want to, I want to start by uh, reflecting with a Dharma context for a few minutes on just kind of what are some of the driving energies that are um, manifesting in this world. And then from there, <coughs> I want to talk a little bit about the prescription um, to aid in those energies that we're going to discover in the world yet again, once again. So we've talked a lot this week uh, about the sense of, or the construct of, <coughs> the solidification of the self. And we've explored how that this sense of separation creates all, um, a whole myriad of sufferings. And with that, with that one mental construction, if it's firmly embedded, I am a separate individual. There is, out of that, a sense of competition with others, a sense of needing to defend and protect this separate, embattled self. So it's not a great leap it's not a great leap at all to see how these constructs and tendencies that we witness individually in ourselves, how they play out collectively. <clears throat> so I want to spend a few minutes on that. And as Eric pointed out the other night, there's a whole host of kind of psychosocially constructed identities and that those constructions have the potential to play out in ways that cause harm. I mean, you can choose any, any characteristic. You can choose any characteristic and kind of make, make a group out of that, an, an other. Race, religion, ethnicity, nationality, gender, class, sex, sexual orientation. And that particular group can be singled out for abuse. But whatever example you pick, however you follow, follow the trail, these examples of exploitation and harm of one group over, an, over another, when you deconstruct the underlying cause, it's always the same. It's the creation of other. That's the flip side <coughs> of the creation of self. If there's a construct of the self, well then we've got an other. And so over and over, we see that again and again in the news. One group 
kind of declaring itself the group, appointing another group as the other. Then there is the kind of information campaign to lessen the humanity of that other group. Then it moves into demonizing that other group. And then you know what happens. That is the etymology of genocide, ethnic cleansing, torture, all forms of exploitation and discrimination. Unfortunately, it happens to be a major thread in human history. It's not the only thread, but it's a terribly significant one. And there are beautiful threads in human history too. The altruism, the love, the compassion. So I want to consider for a few moments some of the major institutions in our culture. I was thinking um, about the nature of the for-profit corporation, of which I've had in my name a dozen of them, half a dozen at least, over time. So I'm, <clears throat> I'm on the inside of this. I'm not part of some other part of this system. But now they've been ruled by the courts to be a person. Okay? Certainly a very impersonal one. And if you understand the operations of a corporation, it's not the kind of neighbor you'd like to have. Now the CEO of a corporation has a legal fiduciary responsibility to the stockholders of this for-profit corporation to make a profit. <clears throat> if he or she decides that social responsibility is more important than profit to the stockholders, their job is in jeopardy. And likewise, anybody downline from that CEO, that head of that organization, um, they're, un they're working under the same constraints. So working in these corporations are wonderful people, and they do have social considerations. You know, what is the effect of this corporation on the community that it's in? What is the effect of this corporation on the environment? But if they exercise those motivations to the detriment of profit and growth of that corporation, their jobs are in jeopardy. Corporations are designed to preserve, increase, and increase their own power and perpetuate themselves separate from the motivations of the individuals that serve them. John Ralston Saul, who's a social uh, commentator, uh, he has this piece about the ethics of modern organizations, and he says, <clears throat> he describes amorality in this way. Amorality is a quality admired and rewarded in modern organizations when it is referred to through metaphors such as professionalism and efficiency. Immorality is doing wrong of our own volition. We know it's unethical, but we go ahead and do it anyway. Amorality is doing it because an organization or a structure expects us to do it. Amorality is therefore worse than immorality because it involves denying our responsibility and therefore denies our existence as anything more than a cog in a machine or, being, or a being without the capacity to think. You know, if you've studied the Nuremberg War Trials after, after World War II, where the, the elite of the Nazi uh, organization was brought to trial, and if, you're, and if you've 
checked in on some of the more recent uh, uh, war criminal trials in The Hague in the Netherlands that are actually now going on, um, you'll see that the defense often it sounds similar throughout history. They were only following orders. That's the plea. And you hear the same, same feeling of defense when executives and leaders of certain corporations that have done damage are, are brought to answer. You hear, well, it was the culture. It was expected of me. It's how we did things. There's a, there's a, there's a disconnect of responsibility. Now, in the Dharma context, looking at all this, all the happenings in the world, in our culture and the institutions, the Buddha talked about the three poisons. Okay? Greed, ill will, and delusion. Also known as the three unwholesome motivations. And he said when these three motivations are activated in operation, it creates problems for ourselves and everyone around us. So it, the, a foundational part of our spiritual path is trying to find ways to negotiate and cultivate the opposite of these poisons. Instead of greed, cultivating the motivation for generosity. Instead of ill will, loving kindness. Instead of delusion, wisdom. Especially the wisdom that is aware of our interdependence. Now, it logically follows <coughs> that the energies of greed, ill will, and delusion, if they are not worked with in a skillful manner with the individuals, those unskillful tendencies and motivations manifest directly in the institutions and the systems that those individuals create and maintain. It's actually unavoidable. It's just cause and effect. And I think you can make a pretty good case that the main, the main cultural institutions in the West and most of the world actually have taken on a life of their own and there's a pretty significant share of the three poisons being manifested there. And this is a larger discussion. Um, but I think he can make the argument that we have institutionalized greed. That's our economic system. We have institutionalized ill will, which manifests as militarism, which manifests as racism, we, which manifests as the punitive attitude that we have towards people who break the law. 600,000 nonviolent drug offenders in prison. We now per capita have more people behind bars than any country in the history of the world. What's going on with that? Institutionalized ill will. And we've institutionalized Ill, Ill will in some of our laws that, are, that contain the attitude that we have for people with different sexual orientations. That too, that battle's going on state by state, court by court. And we have institutionalized delusion 
that involves large portions of the media and the educational system. We have a mostly unquestioning, unquestioning media, unquestioning on the major question pertaining to species survival, which is, is it really possible to have an economic system or economic systems worldwide, everyone subscribes to this, that are totally predicated on the infinite, on, on infinite exponential expansion. Where does a system like that work in nature? You can't find it. Where in, where in nature does an exponential use of resources end up well? The belief, the belief that economies must expand exponentially forever flies in the face of common sense. But that's what you hear from all the political parties here and in Europe and everywhere else. More and more expansion, expansion that's what we need. Da, 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 da. So you might call that delusional. And sadly, the educational system doesn't doesn't weigh in with much of a critical voice either. Basically, kind of training people to fit all the positions to kind of keep this, keep this going in this direction that may be delusional. It's kind of like, we need more lemmings. Get in line. Let's go. You know? So, I don't want to paint a dark picture here. <laughs> <laughs> These are just some of the energies that are operating. <laughs> there are more. So it's impersonal for us. It's, it's important for us to, of course, take a look at the, our personal relationship and how we work with, with greed, our own greed, our own ill will, our own delusion. And it's also important as citizens that we take a look at the institutional aspects of this too that we see around us and do whatever we feel is appropriate. So let's get to the bright stuff. This week, you've been exercising the antidote to these energies. Alone and collectively, you've been doing that. And I want you to think the long view. So I mean, okay, maybe that was a little dark picture, but take a geologic view, a long view. And never forget that there is nothing that is permanent. Not, evenly, not even the seemingly powerful and self-perpetuating systems, institutions, systems, prejudices, and poisons that I outline, outline. They are not permanent. Impermanence is our friend. So in the long view, it was a couple of years ago I was visiting Israel. I think it's my favorite place to visit. Um, and I was at a place called Megiddo. Now, Megiddo is an interesting place. It's kind of out nowhere. But it's the place, according to biblical prophecy, where the apocalypse is supposed to happen. Um, Armageddon is supposed to happen. You know, it's like that's where it all starts, and then everyone goes up in the clouds, and whatever the rapture happens in the rapture. It's supposed to start right there. So an interesting place uh, to visit. Uh, James Michener also wrote about it in, 
in his book, The Source. He doesn't call it Megiddo, but that's what he's writing about. So I was there. It was a summer, really hot. You know, it's like over 100 degrees. And there were these different teams of archaeologists working the area. And they had put little shade tents over. And they're doing their little thing with their little brushes and their little toothbrush, you know, and their toothpicks and stuff. And they're so, uh, so I went and chatted them up, you know, asking them what's, what's going on. And, and, and they explained to me, and this had such an effect on me. They explained to me that they had already gone through like 19 different civilizations. They've been working this site for decades. I don't know, they were twi- at civilization number 21 or something like that. And I was just, wow. You know, I'll bet all of these people living at whatever level they were at was thinking, hey, we got it made. We're going to be around. We got it figured. Well, that thing, that impermanence, you know? So however things look, they're changing. But what we have at our personal disposal and collective disposal is what I, what I call the power of bodhi, bodhicitta. Bodhicitta. Bodhi meaning awakened. Chitta meaning thought, intention, or spirit. Sometimes translated Chitta is sometimes translated as heart-mind. So bodhicitta, those two words together, the spirit of the awakened heart-mind, the attitude of awakening. It's, it's a vision or experience that would so completely saturate you that you want to live your life in a different way. And I felt that for many people in the interviews, be so bursting with love or care or ideas of how they were going to serve or how they were going to tweak a relationship or new understandings, just bursting forth. I could feel it. You know, my eyes misting up person after person as they were sharing their discoveries and their courage and their work. That's bodhicitta. That's the fountain of bodhicitta kind of running over. It's an altruistic energy. It's a path of love and concern for others. It's a life lived for others. It's a desire of all the time to be of benefit for others. The spirit of bodhicitta is to live a, a life that, that this wakefulness unfolds and unfolds and the concern for others grows and grows. Now sometimes bodhicitta is talked about as either absolute bodhicitta or relative bodhicitta. On the relative level, bodhicitta means compassion. On the absolute level, bodhicitta means the empty nature of the mind itself. And one of Buddhism's most salient features or interesting parts is this relationship. We talked about it this week. Between dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, unsatisfactoriness or suffering, and anatta, this, this selfless nature of existence. 
another way to frame anatta or selflessness is that th- this claim of not self is also the claim of no separation. All right? So what's this? Piece of paper? We'd kind of agree with that, maybe. Um, can you see the cloud in this piece of paper? Everybody see it? No? Well, where does the paper come from? Trees. What do trees need? Soil, sunlight, some, you know, some air around them. Moisture. Where does the moisture come from? It comes from rain. Where does the rain come from? Now you see the cloud? Okay, it's right in there. In a way, it's implied that this paper has interbeing with the cloud. And it wouldn't be possible without the cloud to have this piece of paper. But not only the cloud, this piece of paper required all kinds of things. If you think of the lumberjack or the lumberjill, that's a, is that a term? You know? I mean, it's lumberjack. It must, the, whoever the person was that cut down the tree with the chainsaw, you know, think of all the support involved with that person. That person was not some independent self. That person was birthed, cared for, educated. You know, someone trained them how to use that equipment safely, we hope. You know, someone made their clothes. You know, someone made, designed that equipment. Some engineer created that. They designed it. They used resources. They put it all together. They trucked it. Somebody built the trucks, designed the trucks. They built the roads. There's a lot going into Lumberjill or Lumberjack in that moment of cutting that tree down. And so that's just this piece of paper, all right? And it's the same for it's the same for you. Your parents, your grandparents, back and back and back, until you're kind of running on all fours and climbing in trees, back even further. And Tara last night talked about that. The, the cell, the formation of the cell, all the, way, all the way back through all our reptile ancestors, back to that cell and what it took, you know, what it took to bring life here and what were those constituents, the carbon, the oxygen, the nitrogen, whatever it was, and the, and the fusion and the supernovas of all the, of all the stars that, that created it. And then before that, even the Big Bang, So, so what I'm trying to get at is the notion that each and every one of us is a manifestation of all these causes and conditions of the cosmos. Each of you is, exa- is an example of how it all comes together right here, right now. I mean, you literally are stardust. This whole room is stardust. Some of you have probably heard of Indra's net. It's my favorite metaphor for, for the cosmos. Indra was an Indian god, I believe. And uh, the metaphor is that the whole cosmos is constructed um, of this net. It's a three-dimensional net, or maybe even four or five-dimensional net, that extends infinitely in all directions. And what's significant about this net 
is that in every node of the net, at every intersection, is a, is a multifaceted jewel, a beautiful jewel, that is then reflecting all the other nodes in this whole cosmic net. And if you look carefully into that, into that jewel, you will see all the reflections of all the other jewel reflected in there. You might need a microscope or something to do that. So a, a cosmos, a creation constructed out of all these elements reflecting one another. And in terms of cause and effect, everything is, a, is the cause of everything else. And everything is the effect of everything else. And in terms of spiritual practice, the difference between samsara, the wheel of suffering, and nirvana, between heaven and hell, or between delusion and enlightenment, is whether that each, that, that very special, each node, whether they have a sense or a feeling of separation from everything else in this vast net. And if they do, that's delusion. And that little node is going to suffer. Or whether there is a realization of that node that they are just this simple but beautiful reflection of all of creation. This incredible interdependence, it points to emptiness. Not this kind of, you know, you, sometimes you think of emptiness as this depressive, gray, vacuum, horrible, you know, who wants that emptiness? But as we repeated this week, it's emptiness of self. The Tibetan teacher Shapkar says, the mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, and ceaselessly responsive. The mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, and ceaselessly responsive. I don't know if you can feel the possibility there of that mind. So let's, let's do a little reflection together. Be comfortable. Close your eyes if you wish. And let's take, let's just say, three really deep breaths. Nice and slow, deep, full. Settling in now, just noticing the play of life through you. Sounds, sensations, emotions, thoughts, just bubbling through, arising, passing. And all known by awareness. It's the dance of life.
Now, look directly at the nature of awareness. Awareness is empty. Vast. Transparent. Unstained. Vivid. Awareness is the knowing presence for the play of all phenomena. But it is not made of them. Look directly at the nature of awareness. Intrinsically empty, radiant, illumined, Look directly at the nature of awareness. Empty of self, yet ceaselessly responsive to all situations. Awake, responsive, knowing. Alive and cognizant. Look directly at the nature of awareness. So we've been trying this week, pointing, you know, trying different language, you know, and maybe you've had an experience of that kind of opening or that direct experience of awareness and the play of life within it, but maybe not. It's just, it's just a pointing. So. Are you the node in Indra's net, that activity known as you, that jewel that really recognizes your interdependence with all of creation? I hope you are. You know, over and over we fall into self-centeredness. I mean, it's okay. It's kind of like it's kind of like gravity when we contract down. You know, there's this we we this, this self-centered reference point that gets created and activated, and we're just circling tightly around it. And it's like we're being we're shut in with our worries, hopes, fears, and plans. Everything gets referenced from that narrow space. 
It just happens when we lose perspective. Mindfulness escapes. Then it's if, it's, if, it's if your whole life then revolves around trying to get the next thing that you want. You know, whatever that might be. The thing, the experience, the person. Or it revolves around you wanting to get rid of the thing, the experience, or the person. <laughs> you know? And there's this kind of delusional hope that if you can only pull that off, then happiness and peace will be yours forever. But the great benefit of this practice is that it helps us see the futility in that. So we're, we're humans. And over and over, you know, when we don't pay attention, we get pulled into this tight, centered, egocentric self, and we try to gratify it, defend it, protect it, fulfill it. But through mindfulness, through a patient and kind, careful attention that we've been practicing this week, through that patient and kind, careful investigation of your own hearts and minds, you can penetrate deeper and deeper into the, subtle level, the very subtle levels of experience. And from that base, you can have a glimpse of the empty nature of self. And you can get that sense. It's, it's visceral. And you get a sense of the Buddha's basic instruction to us, the key instruction. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. The basic instruction. So in time and practice and exploration, you do get some moments where this confining kind of energy of this ego-centeredness lightens up, lifts a little bit. And, and it feels like there's more air. There's, there's like more movement. There's more ease. The constraints that have been holding you down release, even temporarily. And in a way, you kind of, it's, it's like the universe opens. You take flight. You're reborn. Hallelujah, brothers and sisters. You're reborn in that moment. This from Rilke. It's called Buddha in Glory. Center of all centers, core of cores. Almond, self-enclosed, and growing sweet. All this universe. To the furthest stars, all beyond them is your flesh, your fruit. Now you feel how nothing clings to you. Your vast shell reaches into endless space. And there the rich thick fluids rise and flow. Illuminated in your infinite peace. A billion stars go spinning through the night. Blazing high above your head. But in you is the presence that will be. When all the stars are dead. So we do get to glimpse that vast radiance of mind, boundless, clear, unconstrained. And sometimes we get that feeling when we're around certain people. Have you ever been around somebody who you kind of 
their field kind of brings out this sense of, of emptiness. It's like, it's like you start drafting behind them like in NASCAR, you know, you kind of. A few years ago, uh, I had the good fortune of Bhante Gunaratana came to spend a few days with me in my house. He was in need of, or his, his people at the monastery thought he needed some R&R. He never feels he needs R&R. So for those of you who don't know Bhante G, he's like, I think he's now in his 80s. He's been practicing and meditating since he was like 11. Started out in the jungles of Sri Lanka and he's had a fabulous career. And he's right in West Virginia, and he's still available. He's a world treasure, okay? So, so he comes, and he's with me. We're just doing ordinary things. Of course, his day isn't too ordinary. He meditates for three hours every morning from like three to six. And then he's on his laptop writing four books simultaneously, <laughs> of which he says and doesn't care, I'm going to die before these are done, but maybe somebody will pick them up and keep going, you know? So I'm spending time with him and we're hanging out with, with my dogs and he likes to go on these long walks and we're taking these long walks and we're talking about the birds and, the, and we have a few Dharma discussions. But I'm starting to feel like he's there, like I'm a little stoned. You know, it's like, like, like what is this, you know? And I'm realizing that just being in his presence, just doing nothing, you know, I'm feeling this kind of openness and emptiness, and that's that's what he was transmitting, you know. And, maybe, and you've probably met some people like that. Very inspiring. The other night, Eric talked about Meister Eckhart, that uh, either 12th or 13th century mystic. Which century is it? 14th. Okay, I'm falling back. The Christian mystic. Um, a more modern modern example. Uh, of another Christian saint is this uh, this little interview that Mother Teresa had. Some of you might have heard this. But they asked her, they said, uh, Mother Teresa, what do you say uh, when, you, when, you, when you pray? Or what do you, what do you say to God when you pray? And she said, well, I don't say anything. I just listen. And then the interviewer said, well, okay, well then what does God say to you? And she said, he doesn't say anything. He just listens. <laughs> and then she said, and if you don't understand that, I can't explain it to you. <laughs> so there she is, this little frail spit of a woman, just listening to listening, listening, you know? Resting in emptiness, awake, heart open. That's so sweet. Yeah. <laughs> and from the Buddha, in what is seen, there should be just the seen. In what is heard, there should be just the heard. In what is sensed, there should be just the sensed. In what is thought, there should be just the thought. It's just that simple. Awareness, knowing, activity. Just the knowing without the overlaid constructs. Open, empty. And from Rumi, live in the nowhere that you come from even though you have an address here. Live in the nowhere that you come from even though you have an address here.
That's the rich, beautiful paradox of this practice. To come to, to actually taste the nowhere that you come from, even when you got your boots on the ground, right here, right now, in the midst of all this stuff, all the activities and relationships, the joys, the sorrows, the gains, the losses, all the responsibilities that you have and you'll be going back to tomorrow. We're living in the midst of all this, all this mishugana. Pretty good for an Irish Catholic, right? <laughs> but we know we, it's, it's there. We talked about this this morning. When we have that experience, it's there and it informs us that no matter how contracted and weird it might be getting, it's larger than that. We are connected. We're experienced, as Jimi Hendrix would say. We've had that taste. Somebody asked in an interview whether empathy and compassion, you know, whether they were the same. Well, compassion is something more than more than empathy. Empathy is beautiful. It's the feeling for another's difficulty. But compassion has a movement in it. It has a movement, has a quivering and a movement in the heart. And as Thich Nhat Hanh said, it's a verb. There's a motivation to do something, to reach out. What can I do to help? It's, it's that movement. And the stirring of the heart like that, that's the relative bodhicitta. This is from Norman Fisher, a Zen teacher. And he says, we have all sorts of needs and we can pile them up. When self-concern is our major motivation, it requires a high level of cooperation from the world. And it, does, and it just doesn't work like that. Have you noticed? When the light of bodhicitta goes off, the whole perspective changes, broadens. We see how much happier it is to be expansive and to be concerned for others. And when we look into the nature of self, we see that we are the other. It's Indra's net. He goes on, under self-concern, when bad things happen, there is a tight anguish. The picture widens out. And we have a whole different set of concerns under bodhicitta. And even when bodhicitta, bodhicitta sees suffering in the world and takes it in, there is still room for joy. There is sorrow. But because of the expansive perspective, there is room for joy. It is not narrow. Bodhicitta, awareness, can hold everything. It's how in certain times of our life we can be grieving a death. We can be grieving a loss, a separation. And we can have some giggles in that vastness. The Dalai Lama. Great example. 40 years or more and 50 years in exile, 60 years. In, he's been in exile a long time. And if you think about it, I mean, he's been struggling for the, for the, to kind of restore his people and their rights back in their homeland. And he's been mostly unsuccessful. Let's just face it. And you'd think that he might harden against this, get really pissed off. 
But he doesn't. He hasn't. His capacity to keep the heart open, I just find astounding. All that adversity. His heart is now legendary. And he says this. Whenever I meet people, I always approach them from the standpoint of the most basic things we have in common. We each have a a physical structure, a mind, emotions. We're all born in the same way, and we all die. All of us want happiness and do not want to suffer. Looking at others from this standpoint, rather than from emphasizing secondary differences, such as the fact that I am Tibetan or of a different color, religion, or cultural background, allows me to have a feeling that I'm meeting someone just the same as me. I find that relating to others on that level makes it much easier to exchange and communicate. It's great bodhicitta, that man. There's many other high-profile examples that you know of. Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, Gandhi, Rosa Parks. Now, our lives are generally not lived in that sp- the international spotlight. But the expression, the expression of bodhicitta takes many ordinary and beautiful forms, and sometimes in surprising ways, from regular people, fearful, wounded people, who are touched by this energy because this energy is inherent. There is a kind of bodhicitta fountain that's bubbling away. And we see it a lot when we're out in the world. The acts of compassion, you know, the service that people provide. I want to tell a story about my father. Um, I used him as examples before. For those, you know, he, uh, uh, his father was an Irish immigrant, uh, married who we believe to be a, a Mohawk woman from New York State in the 1890s, he married her. They had a whole bunch of children, like 13 children. Or maybe it was 11, I forget. Seven of them lived to adulthood, adulthood. My father was the youngest. His father died when he was two. None of his siblings or he had an education beyond grade school. They all worked together. They all went out and worked, did what they could. So he goes in the war. And he ends up, uh, on the war, World War II he starts, he goes in the war. He ends up in the Fifth Army, who, who still, I believe, has the record, although some of these units now in Afghanistan may have the record, for most consecutive days of combat. It's like 670 days of combat, something like that, straight days of combat. So when he came out, and they didn't call it PTSD then, but he was a severe case of PTSD to the max. He had a violent temper. He was impatient. In fact, if he was sleeping, if you were to touch him, whatever direction the touch was, he would swing a clenched fist with some power in that direction. My mother had to learn how to duck and cover. And when my sister and I, you know, would wake him up, we'd make sure we were leaning away, touch him on the other side, he'd go the other way, and we'd be, duck that one. But that's the kind of tension that was in this man. So I guess I was about 14 or 15. We grew up in New Jersey in this this row house. 
There's a whole bunch of, there's six in the row house. They're, I guess they're called townhouses now, about 900 square feet. And it was a nice kind of interesting group. Uh, next door was an Italian family, next door to that. And these are all little two bedrooms, small places. Next door there were three kids in that two bedroom. Next to them there were six kids in this other Irish family. Then there was a, a Jewish family. And there was another, you know, so it was interesting. Lots of kids. It was fun. But next, to, right next door through the paper-thin walls was um, uh, the family that's oldest child was the, um, the leader of the North Jersey Aliens motorcycle gang known as Jersey Jack. You know, it's like when Easy Rider came out, they went and they interviewed him on his reaction to the film. Very powerful, very powerful guy. And I, and I got a lot of cachet from being kind of, I, wasn't, I didn't hang out with him. He was a few years older. But it was like, oh, Pat knows Jack? Well, all right. And he would also buy us, he would buy us beer and liquor and stuff like that. I mean, he was, he was one of my favorites. So they had been, all been arrested in their, in their clubhouse and Patterson had been closed down. So they started having their motorcycle meetings right there at the house. And our little, our little unit, and we had a yard that was about 200 square feet. I mean, it was not 10 by 20 or something. But we were on the corner. So on, on gang meeting night, all the choppers would, would be there. And they're drinking beer, and there's, you know, 15, 20 choppers, and they're girls, and, you know, they're all hanging out there. And so I'm, I'm just in the porch. I must have been 14 or 15. And my father comes busting past me. He's a little guy. And he's going, those SOBs. And he runs out there. And I go, what is... And I look out. And a couple of the guys are urinating on our fence. They've been drinking a lot of beer. And so I'm saying, oh, my God. And my father, he's just, he's swearing at him, reading him the riot act, runs right up to him. So I grab a baseball bat. And I didn't have much of a relationship with my father. So I'm standing half outside the door, half frozen in fear inside the door with my left hand with a baseball bat, watching this and thinking, do I have to die too? And I'm scared. I'm frozen. And so, and these guys are moving in close. And I could barely see my father. They're starting to move around him. And then out of nowhere comes Jack, Jersey Jack, the president of the club. And he just gets right in there and he apologizes to my father. And I go, and then these other guys, they start apologizing. And they back off and I'm going, I get to live. (laughs) So my father comes back in the house, and a few minutes later, I hear him coming up from the cellar, banging, you know, and he's coming up, and he's got two toolboxes, okay? And I said, where are you going? He says, well, I'm going to help the kids with their motorcycles. (laughs) So he drags his precious tools. Don't ever touch his tools. He drags them out there in the street, and he's working on the bikes with these kids, kids. For, for hours, and I'm just, you know. So a damaged, wounded man. But still, inside, that fountain of bodhicitta was there, just below the surface. And, he, and somehow, after that altercation, came out the desire to help. This is how he knew how to help. I was dumbfounded. 
but I'll never forget it. So we don't have to be anything special or be totally healed or anything to practice bodhicitta in the world. Just through a little cultivation and practice and remembrance. We can extend greater kindness to our family, our friends, our co-workers, the clerk at the store, every, anyone we meet. This is from uh, Sister Joan Chittister. She has her own special way of compassion practice. Um, She says, try saying this silently to everyone and everything you see for 30 days. It's her 30-day program. I wish you happiness now and whatever will bring you happiness in the future. And she says, "If if we set it to the sky, we would have to stop polluting. If we set it when we see the ponds and lakes and streams, we would have to stop using them as garbage dumps and sewers. If we said it to small children, we would have to stop abusing them, even in the name of training. If we said it to people, we would have to stop stoking the fires of enmity. Beauty and human warmth would take root in us like a clear, hot June day. We would change. And it is said when relative and absolute bodhicitta are present, namely compassion and emptiness, that enlightenment is unavoidable. Enlightenment is unavoidable. So this practice of compassion and loving kindness are not lofty ideals the energy of that awakened heart-mind lies within us. We don't have to create it from scratch. It's there. And sure enough, sometimes we, it gets veiled over. You know, we get fearful we're our conditioning or what, whatnot, and we can't seem to locate it. But even in those times, when things are really difficult, when, the, when it hits the fan, when everything seems stacked against you, when you feel lost and hopeless and small, contracted, if you, if you can remember to take the time to look, just that sacred pause, you can find your love again. You can find your compassion again, your kindness right, right in that moment because it's always right here. It's just a pause and a relaxation away. So let's, let's sit a moment. <clears throat> this is maybe my favorite quote from Walt Whitman. Pausing, searching, receiving, contemplating gently but with undeniable will divesting myself of the holds that would hold me I inhale great drafts of space the east and the west are mine and the north and the south are mine I am larger better than I thought I did not know I held so much goodness 
So thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.